Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek and they're not in trouble as others are. They're not, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and, they, and find no fault in them. And they say... How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said... I will speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept, utter, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one's awake, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Your precious word. Living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Like a fire, like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. Like sweet honey and nourishment to our souls. God, we love your word. And we pray, God, that you would take your word right now, Lord, and address us. Holy Spirit, that you would address us through your word this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. Open our eyes to eternity. God, help us to not just look at the things that are seen. But the, unthe the unseen things that are revealed through Your Word. 
Help us this morning to worship you through your word. We love you, Lord, and commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to break up this psalm into three parts. If you're taking notes, this might be helpful for you later to remember these three parts. One is just the basic truth, and it's this. The goodness of God towards the people of God. Now we find that in verse 1. The goodness of God towards His people. Two, second part of this psalm. The goodness of God doubted. Because Asaph, the writer, is walking by sight and not by faith. So two would be the goodness of God doubted. You can find that in verses 2 through 14. Three would be the goodness of God admired. Because Asaph has begun to walk by faith and not by sight. The goodness of God admired. And you can find that in verses 15 through 28. So let's take this psalm. And meditate together on this psalm in those three parts. So let's start with number one. The basic truth. The goodness of God towards His people. Look at it. Verse one. Truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. Now that's a truth that we need to hold on to. A basic truth that we need to hold on to. Especially when situations get hard. When things get difficult and we can't see clearly, we need to hold to this truth that our God is good to His people. I love the verse in Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. It's as if someone is praying and they're laying out that baseline truth. God, you're good and you do good and yet there's something going on that I can't understand. God, teach me your statutes. But it's a basic truth. God is good to His people. Now let me ask a question. Is God good to all people? Is God good to all people? You think He's good to all people? Raise your hand if you think He's good to all people. I said, everybody's looking around. <laughs> Listen, God is good to all people. In the sense of God's common grace, right? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, that God makes His Son, S-U-N, He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. He makes His rain fall on the just and on the unjust. Unjust. Listen, God is good to all. To all. But what's being spoken of in verse 1 is God's goodness on a whole nother level. This is God's goodness on a whole nother level. This is God's goodness towards His people, which is a different thing. That's what it says in verse 1, right? Truly God is good to Israel. And man, He's talking about that true, that real Israel. Look, to those who are pure in heart. God's good to all, but there's a goodness on a whole nother level that's God's goodness towards His people. And we have to lay hold of that truth. Especially when things get hard. There's a battle raging over this issue in your heart and mind right now. Is God good? 
Does he mean good towards you as his people? Since the Garden of Eden has been a battle raging, will you believe, will you trust when it gets hard in the goodness of God towards his people? There's a psalm I read this week, Psalm 84, and there's a verse I memorized long ago and was sweetly reminded of it. Psalm 84, verse 11, where it says, No good thing, listen to it, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Isn't that a beautiful truth? No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You say, man, I'm going through something right now that doesn't seem so good. It is. You say, I'm I'm asking God for something and God doesn't seem to be giving me that thing that I desire. Must not be good for you because no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You say, well, well, God's given me something that seems really, really difficult. How could this be good? Rest in the word of God. It says no good thing will he withhold. It's good for you. The goodness of God towards his people. But do you ever begin to question that in your heart? Is there ever questions in your heart where you begin to wrestle or struggle with is that true? You start asking questions like, why does, why does the God-ignoring world seem to prosper? Why does it seem like evil is prevailing in the world? You ask questions like that. If God is good, then, then why is there evil? Why do bad things happen to God's people if God is so good? Or questions like, Why do the righteous suffer? I mean, shouldn't it be that if God is so good, shouldn't it be that uh, really, really bad things are happening to those people that ignore God and despise God and reject God? And really, really good things should be happening to those who follow God and love God that are His people. Isn't that how it should be? Do Do you ever begin to question things like that in your heart? Well, that's in Psalm 73. That's Asaph's struggle. That's what he's dealing with. That's what Psalm 73 is addressing. Verse 1 gives us the basic truth that God is good to his people. It's the basic truth. But Asaph, walking by sight, looks at the world, looks out at the world around him. He looks at himself and he begins doubting the goodness of God of God. In fact, it says, as we're going to read, that he even becomes envious of what the world has. He becomes envious of the world that's around him. That's verse 2 through 14. And then a beautiful thing, like we said a moment ago, happens where all of a sudden something happens to Asaph where he wakes up and he begins to see clearly now And he begins to admire the goodness and and glory and greatness of God towards his people. And that's that last section, verse 15 through 28. Here's the way uh, Charles Spurgeon, the way Charles Spurgeon summarizes song. He says, here begins the narrative of a great soul battle. A spiritual marathon. A hard and well-fought field in which the half-defeated became, in the end, the wholly victorious. 
So number one, God is good to his people. Number two, let's go to that second part. Verse 2 through 14, the goodness of God is doubted by Asaph. Look at verse 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you understand that? Yeah, God is good. But for me, I began to slip. I began to fall. Why? He's looking at the world and he becomes envious. He begins to want, to desire, to long for the prosperity of the world. The prosperity of the wicked. Think about that. Imagine Asaph there and he's looking over the world, the lost, God-ignoring world. And what does he feel? Does he feel pity? Does he feel righteous anger towards the injustices in the world? No, it says here in verse 3, he feels envious. He feels envious of the world. I want what they have. I want their stuff. I want their prosperity. I want their health. I want, I want all that's going good for them. I want their ease. I want their riches. He feels envy. Now verse 4 through 12 gives us more details about what that envy looked like. What exactly did he see that made him so envious? And I want you to try as we kind of read back through verse 4 through 12. I want you to try to, to just try to hear the complaining envy in his heart as these things, as these things are being said. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. God, these evil people are living a pain-free life. Why do I, as your people, why do I, as part of your people, why do I experience such pain? Their bodies are fat and sleek. Some of you are like, I've never been envious of that before. <laughs> the idea here, not as we typically think of it, is health, abundance. They never go without a meal. They always get to eat. They're always full. God, they hate you. They, they reject you, Lord. Why, why is it they experience no trouble? Why are they pain-free? Why do they have health? And here we are, your people in turmoil. Verse 5. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. You hear the complaint? God, we... Our lives are so troublesome and not theirs. What's happening here, Lord? Verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. All this is happening, God, and they're proud of it. And they're filled with foolishness. Why are they not being held accountable, God? You hear the complaint? Keep going. They scoff and, and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Like arrogant men, an arrogant world, their tongue just struts through the earth. In fact, they're bringing down oppression on your people. God, why are they not being held accountable? 
Why do we suffer so? And they seem to go without any accountability from you whatsoever. Therefore, verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, listen to what they're saying. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? You hear that arrogance? You hear Asaph saying, God, why don't you strike them down? Why don't you strike them down? They think you don't even know. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. Here we are, God. We're your people. And it's not easy. It's difficult. And there they are. And they're at ease. And they just constantly increase in riches. This is an envious complaint. The world is not being held accountable for its evil. In fact, it seems like it seems like the world's being rewarded. And Asaph looks out in the world and says, Why? My feet are stumbling because of this. Why is it this way? Now, have you ever struggled with thoughts like that before? Have you ever struggled with thoughts like that before? Why does it seem so easy for them, but so hard for me? Am I not a child of God? Why does it seem so hard when I'm a child of God? They're not even children of God. Have you ever struggled with thoughts like that? David did. Go read Psalm 10, verse 1 through 5. And he's saying similar things. Why, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord, will you do nothing? Why, O oh Lord, he says in Psalm 10. Now these thoughts that Asaph, that, that he's having, have gotten him into a very, very, very dangerous place. Look at verse 13 and 14. He turns to himself and says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You hear what he's saying there? All in vain. I'm your follower. I'm one of your people, but it's all in vain. Do you hear how dangerous that is? He's telling God, God, it's worthless now to follow you. He's feeling that in his heart, that it's a worthless thing to follow God. And specifically to cleanse your heart. As it says here, to, to walk in holiness. It's vanity. It's a waste of time. You know, Solomon in, in the book of Ecclesiastes speaks about the vanity of the world's ways. He walked in the world's ways and he says, when I survey all my hands have done and all I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, vanity, and nothing was gained under the sun. You see, at that moment in his life, he saw the world as vanity. And here's Asaph. And what does he see? I won't let the world's God. Serving God, following God is vain. It's meaningless. This man has gotten into a very, very dangerous place. Have you ever struggled with thoughts like these? I'm wasting my time. I just want what the world has. I'm just wasting my time. This just feels vain. This pursuit of God. Have you ever felt that way before? I was talking this week to our brother that prayed earlier, Paul Sandulak from Moldova. 
And he was mentioning to me how much this psalm had had an impact on him. And he gave me a little glimpse into his early school days. And I remember my early school days, there weren't many Christians, at least that, of course, I wouldn't have eyes to see them if they were. But it didn't seem like there were many Christians around me. But at least Christianity wasn't absolutely rejected. It was respected and accepted as it tends to be in this culture. And yet Paul, he gave me this glimpse into his life of him in school with all his peers around him. And Christianity is not accepted. It's not seen as good. He's seen as, as one that is to be rejected. He's seen as bizarre. He and his family. And what he began to do is something like this that he began. Paul mentions how he began to, to envy the wicked, to want to be like them, to just be normal, to just go along with my peers. And then he heard Psalm 73 preached. Was it your dad, Paul? Body. And it had a huge impact on his life. Have you ever struggled with feelings like this? I just want to be, just want to be normal like everybody else around me. Following God is vain. So this, this massive transition is about to happen where this is how Asaph is feeling. He's doubting the goodness of God. He's walking by sight, not by faith. And a big transition is about to happen. Now before we move to verse 15 and into that transition, let me say just a couple of things. If you read this and you can relate with it, you know what I mean by that? You're like, man, I thought, you know, I thought when you read your Bible, you know, you know, everybody's just really holy. Nobody ever has any struggles or problems. And then you read this and you go, oh, man, I can relate with it. I've had I've had feelings like this. I have struggles like this, too. If you feel like you can relate with this, I want to say something to you real quick before we move on. And it's this. Be comforted. By Asaph's struggle, but do not be comfortable. Be comforted by Asaph's struggle, but do not be comfortable in this struggle. And here's what I mean. Yes, you should be comforted by this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man. That yes, in God's word, especially the psalmist, we see them struggling with things like this and, and doubt and hardships and Speaking these things in prayer to God. We see this kind of stuff. Find comfort in that. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to put up a front like you always got it together. So I do want to encourage you to find comfort in that. But I also want to warn you not to get comfortable in sin. Or comfortable in Asaph's struggle. Because here's the thing. The way Asaph describes where he was was dangerous. Don't be comfortable with it. This is dangerous. Think about verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. People have begun to doubt the goodness of God and keep going down that path and slip off into hell. That has happened. It's a dangerous place to be. He doesn't speak about this as a good thing. He speaks about it as sin. A verse we'll come to in just a moment is found in verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, and I was like a beast towards you. You see, this is dangerous. This is sin. So be, comfort, be comforted by this man's honest struggle, but don't be comfortable in this sin. There's sort of a, you know, sort of a cool Christian movement. You know, cool Christian, right? Somebody 
you know, confesses sin like this, and it's almost like the cool thing to confess. And man, that one confessing that sin, he's just so real. You ever heard that? He's just so real. He's just so honest. And yet so often, he's just so comfortable in his sin. So please don't fall to that. Don't be comfortable in this. Asaph is not comfortable in his sin. He's trying to claw his way out of it. As should we. Now, third section. Verse 15 through through 28. This big transition happens. And we see now the goodness of God admired. As Asaph walks by faith, not by sight. Now, the first, if you begin in verse 15... The very first uh, good thing, as Asaph's in the midst of his sin, the very first good thing that he does is keep his mouth shut. The first good thing he does is keep his mouth shut. Look at it in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Here he is. He's feeling this. It's a struggle on the inside. And he knows, man, I'm not blurting this out to the world, to the dishonor of God. If I would have said these things, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. There's a principle here. Let me read a couple of verses to you. Proverbs 17, verse 27. Listen to this. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit... A calm spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. Another one like that is Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. First thing good that Asaph does is he seeks to claw his way out of this sinful mindset is keep his mouth shut to restrain his lips and therefore exercise wisdom. When you're drowning in sin, it's not time for you to write a blog post. When you're drowning in sin, it's not time for you to blurt it out over Facebook. That's not real confession of sin where you confess it to the lost world and they pat you on the back for being so real. Yes, you should confess your sin. Proverbs 28, 13 is clear. It says if you confess it and forsake it, you'll find mercy. But you confess it to those who are near to you, those that will hold you accountable, those that love you. But there's a sense in which you, when you're in the midst of this sin, you keep your mouth shut. Otherwise, it's harm to the name of God. Now, that's the first thing he does good, but here's the best thing that he did. The best thing is Asaph's trying to claw his way out. The best thing he did is in verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until. It's beautiful. Listen. Best thing he did. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So what did he do? best thing that he did. He's trying to cause way out of his sin. And what does he do? He goes into the sanctuary of God. It means the dwelling place of God. It means he drew near to God. And he set his mind on eternity. You see what it says that says that there? 
I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. He, he went into the presence of God. He drew near to God and he set his mind on eternity. He begins to think about their end. Not just this life now, but the end. Into eternity. Best thing that he does. Now I want you to think about it. When you're in the midst of sin, the last thing that sin and Satan want you to do is to draw near to God. The last thing sin and Satan want you to do when you're in sin, like Asaph was, was to draw near to God. And yet it's what you need. James 4.8, it's a promise. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. What a sweet promise. It's exactly what we need is to draw near to God. And think about setting your mind on the end. He discerned their end. Think about setting your mind on eternity. When you do that, it changes everything. You see, this life that we live, it's just like a small little bitty drop in the massive ocean of eternity. Set your mind, not on the little drop, but on the ocean of eternity. Why are the wicked prospering? Why do the righteous suffer so? Why? Quit focusing on the drop. Think about eternity. Think about the ocean. Lift up your eyes and see the end of these things. You know, five seconds into eternity, you think Asaph will be asking the same questions? Five seconds in, you think he'll say, God, why did the wicked prosper? God, why did I suffer so? Five seconds in, none of that will be there. What will be there? He, he will long for Christ, love Christ. He might look back and wish he was more devoted to Christ and prayed more and loved his word more. Draw near to God. Best thing he did, draw near to God and set his mind on eternity. Now as he does that, verse 18 through 20 we see Asaph considering the eternity of the very people he's been envious of. Verse 18 through 20, he begins to consider the end or discern the end or the eternity of the world, the wicked that he has been envious of. And he wants to think about what it says here. Look at it in verse 18. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. Now that's the truth. You set them in... He, his eyes are now open. He's using personal pronouns. He's dealing directly with God now. He hadn't done that the whole psalm. Now he's saying, you God, you God have set them in slippery places. But wait a minute. It looks so secure. What did they say, what did they say earlier? They're at ease. They increase in riches. They're proud. Everything goes good for them. They have no pain until death. They've got health, wealth, and prosperity. There they are. It seems so secure. And God said it's slippery. Let me tell you what you can't see. I've set them in slippery places. Listen, if you're here today and you have a godless life, that your life is not devoted to God, yet it's a good life, you are in a slippery, slippery place. Your feet in a moment are going to come out from under you. And you could be in eternity. It goes on to say, 
You make them fall to ruin. You see, his eyes are open. The ones that he's envious of, now he's seeing they're in. That, they're, that, they're, that you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Sudden destruction is going to come upon them, Asaph. Can't you see? It's like that rich fool in Luke 12. Remember him? He's storing up all his riches, building bigger barns. And God says, you fool, this day your soul will be required of you. Sudden destruction. It's like the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Do you remember that? Lazarus is, is poor and begging for scraps and the dogs are licking his sores. And the rich man fares sumptuously every day, dressed in purple and royal attire. And then in a moment, both of them taken away. One of them with Christ forever. One of them burning in hell for eternal punishment. In a moment... Asaph, consider their end. The ones that you're envious of, consider their end. Look at the next line here. It says they're swept away utterly by terrors. Brothers and sisters, when is the last time, I know it's unpleasant, but when's the last time you considered and thought deeply about the terrors of hell? The people can have it all right in this world and then have hell. Do you understand the terror? It says terrors here. Do you understand the terrors of hell? The scripture calls it torment. Torment. Day and night. Forever and ever. It has no end. It's punishment like you have never felt before. And the worst thing about hell, the most disturbing thought about hell is the eternality of hell. That you can be 10 years into hell and you're no sooner through with your punishment. You'll be 5 million years, 5 million years into hell and you're not any closer to it being over than when you began. It's terrifying. It's terrors. Asaph, I'm be envious. Look at the next line. Verse 20 says, Like a dream. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Like a dream. You ever think about that? Anybody have a dream last night? You know, you have that dream, and in that moment, it feels so real. I'm in the midst of this dream. Everything feels so real. Then, boom, I wake up. It's over and it's forgotten. Life's like that. This drop, tiny drop in the ocean of eternity. Life is like that. It feels so real to you right now. And you might want what the world has right now. But listen, you're going to wake up to eternity. It's just going to feel like a dream that's gone. And now it's forever. He discerned their end. Now with their... Asaph's got their eternity in view now. The world's, the ones that he was envious of, he's got their eternity in view. How do you think he feels now? You think he envies them? Or do you think he pities them? Then, verse 21 through 24... Asaph begins to consider his own eternity. Remember he was saying that. God, it's, the stuff I'm doing now, living for you, God, it's vain. But then he starts considering... His own eternity. In verses 21 through 24. Look at it. When my soul was embittered. When I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. That's his own sin. 
Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, in this beautiful, you will receive me to glory. <laughs> it's just vain to serve you right now, Lord, until I dwell, I, 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 I move near to God. I went into the dwelling place of God and I began to discern and think about eternity and even my own end. And guess what? My God is going to receive me into glory. Isn't that beautiful? Psalm 1611, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures forevermore. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, no eye has seen, not an eye in this room. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard. It has not even entered into your heart the things that God has prepared for those who love him. I'm going to enter into that one day. We're going to enter into that glory of the fullness of joy of, of His presence. So you ask the question, God, God, why would the world be allowed to continue on in their rebellion, unrestrained, unaccountable? And yet for me, God, verse 14, I feel like I'm rebuked every day. I feel like I'm rebuked every morning, God. Why does the world just seem to be left to themselves? And yet I'm rebuked every day. Why, God? And in and, and this verse, verse 21 through, through uh, 24, it gives this answer. Because you're my children. They go unrestrained and you feel rebuked every day. And here's one of the answers. Because you're my children. You're my children. Do you see that right here? Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, even though I've got sin, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You see a picture of a father holding his child's hand. Son, you're always with me. And I'm holding your hand. You guide me with your counsel. You just see this fatherly towards his children. Why is it, God, that I suffer? But the world seems to be unrestrained because you're my children. Same arguments made in Hebrews 12. You go read Hebrews 12 and it says, look, if God didn't bring discipline to you, bring hardship to you, you're like an illegitimate son. But he deals with you as sons. He deals with you as sons and daughters. Some of you with kids, maybe you've had this happen to you before, but you go somewhere with your family, and it's you and your, you know, you and your spouse and your children, and you're all walking. So maybe you're in a restaurant, maybe you're in a grocery store or something. But there you are together, and you see another family, and man, their kids are nuts. Ever happened to you? They're yanking stuff off shelves, hollering making a mess, just completely disobeying their parents. And maybe you've experienced this before where your children look at you and say, Daddy, those kids are bad. <laughs> and you say, yes, baby, those children, they're bad. And then they look at you and say, Daddy, how come, how come their mom and daddy don't spank them? How come, and I've even had one say, how come they don't love them? You say, I don't know, baby. And then the next question comes. Daddy, why don't you spank them? <laughs> now, when that happens, what do you say? You say, baby, I don't because those kids are not my kids. But if you act like that. <laughs> do, do you catch this? Nevertheless, you walk, you walk into this. Nevertheless, I hold your right hand. 
I'm continually with you. I guide you with my counsel. You're my child. Oh God, why do they go unrestrained? But we seem to be rebuked every day because you belong to me. You're my children. And I love you and I treat you as such. The sweet answer that Asaph gets here. Now, do you see the gospel in those verses? <laughs> so, verse 21. His soul was embittered. It literally means sour. He had a sour heart. When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. Listen to this. God, I was like a beast towards you. I'm like a sinful, rebellious, wretched animal towards you. That's how I was, God. And look at this beautiful word. A brother texted me just this word this morning. Nevertheless. Isn't that a beautiful, you see the gospel in that word? Uh, nevertheless. You see, if, if Jesus doesn't die on the cross, nobody gets a nevertheless. Nobody gets nevertheless, you're with me and you receive me in the glory. Nobody gets that if Jesus doesn't die. You see, people from before Christ, Old Testament realm, they're saved because Jesus died for sinners. They look forward to the Christ that was to come. We look back to the one that's already been crucified. That for these sins right here, an embittered and sour soul, Jesus died for that at the cross. For this brutish ignorance, treating God like an, like an animal, or acting as an animal towards God, Jesus went to the cross as if he was the one that did that stuff. He didn't do it. He was innocent. Yet he goes on this rescue mission and goes to the cross and is crucified for sinners so that you could say, nevertheless, I know my sin, oh God, but nevertheless, I'm continually with you and you hold my right hand and you guide me with your counsel and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Now, you think Asaph is still pitying himself? You think Asaph is still saying, man, it's so vain to, to worship God. After he knows this, after he considers eternity, Listen to this. The only proper response to this kind of revelation of God's goodness, of His glory, the only proper response is verse 25 and 26. You should memorize it. Listen to what it says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful words of worship. That's the only proper response. Listen, first let me say this. That is true. That's true. Look, look at it. There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Now what's being said here? I was teaching this to my kids this week. And here's how I tried to help them. I said... Nothing on earth I desire besides you. Besides you, oh God. And I just said something silly like, did you desire breakfast at this point? And they said, yeah. I said, was that wrong? And they said, no. So what does it mean? Nothing on earth I desire besides you. What does it mean? It means, listen, the desires for even good things in this earth do not compare with that which you can desire in Christ. The joys that you can find in this life do not compare with the joy that's in Christ. Do you get that? To take the happiest moment of your life 
Think about it. Get it in your mind even now. It's like dirt. It's like nothing compared to that which is found in Jesus. In His presence is fullness of joy. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. And look at that next line. My flesh and my heart may fail. My flesh might fail. I might die. Be done away. My physical body. My heart might fail. Like Asaph's heart failed. He rebelled against God. But even though that's true, my heart and my flesh may fail. God is the strength of my heart. And God is my portion. He's the one that I want. He is my portion. He's what I have. So here's the truth. If you lose everything, everything that you have, if you lose it all, but you still have God, you've lost nothing. That's what it says in Hebrews 13. When we're commanded to be content with the things that we have. And then it says this. For he himself said he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Did you catch that? Hey, be content with what you got. And then next line. Because you got me. You've got me. You've got the ultimate desire. The highest of joys. The fountain of all pleasure. You've got Christ. So number one, it's just true. And second thing I want to say about this, verse 25 and 26 is this. Notice the transition. Did you catch it? This is a miraculous transition. What does he say in verse 3? I'm envious of the wicked. I want what the world has. I want things earthly. That's verse 3. Now verse 25, what does he say? Nothing on earth I desire but you. Nothing on earth I desire besides you. You see that massive transition? And brothers and sisters, I want this to be the cry of our heart. Go memorize this verse and pray it. And pray it. And pray it. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for this church. I want this to be the banner over our church. The banner over our hearts. Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? There's nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. You're my portion. You're my portion. You're the one we want. Even more than your gifts, we want you. I want this to be the banner over our church. Now, how do we do that? How do we go from verse 3, I'm envious of the world, to verse 25, nothing I want in this world but Christ? How do we move from there to there? Well, the answer was given for us in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned therein. So here's the answer brothers and sisters, draw near to God. Obey James 4.8 and stand on the promise. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Draw near to Him. Take up His Word. Love His Word. Read His Word. Dig into His Word. And draw near to Him through Christ. Draw near to Him through prayer. Jesus speaks about that secret place. That when you pray, go into the secret place and They call out to your Father. Your Father who hears in heaven will reward you. Seek Him. Draw near to Him. How do we get to this place? Look, if you don't draw near to Him, you don't seek the living God, you'll be like verse 3. Envious of the wicked. But draw near to Him. And please, fix your eyes on eternity. Like the man who said, God, please stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Stamp eternity right in front of your face all the time. Eternity, eternity. Not this drop, not this life, but the ocean of eternity. 
so that we can have this banner over our church. Nothing on earth I desire besides you. Now the psalm closes in verse 27 and 28 by putting these two paths before us. You know, uh, uh, at one point, Asaph is envious. He wants to go on one path and then he ends going on another path. But these two paths are put before us. Path number one, verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. It's path number one. Be far from God. Don't draw near to God. Be far from God. Be unfaithful to God. And this says, you'll perish and He'll put an end to you. This is the terrors that we were talking about earlier. Second path is this, but for me, here's the one Asaph chose, but for me, it is good to be near God. What's Ephesians 2 say? Brought near by the blood of Christ. It's good for me to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. I run to Him for safety. He's my refuge. He's the place where I go for safety. He's my strong tower. That I may tell of all your works. He's so good and glorious. We proclaim it abroad. We just tell of all His works. Two paths are put before us. Which one, which one will you be on? Jesus calls one broad and one narrow. One difficult, one easy. Which one will you be on? Please choose wisely. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words. And God, I pray that you would help us to do just what this psalmist did. God, help us to draw near to you and enter into the sanctuary. God, help us to behold your power and glory. God, help us to set our minds on eternity. God, expose areas in our lives where we're living for this tiny little vapor of a life rather than living for eternity. Expose us, God, and change us. God, please keep our feet from slipping. Keep us from stumbling, Lord. God, keep us from this place of view and service to you as vanity. Protect us, God, and hold us till the end. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.